Hello, welcome to episode 118 of Lunar Poetry Podcast. My name is David Turner. Today's episode is a very special one as it celebrates our fourth birthday. Celebrates four years of podcasting, celebrates 118 episodes recorded in eight countries, celebrates 13 hosts and well over 200 poets in our archive. And ridiculously, it celebrates over 30,000 times somebody pressed play on an episode. As many of you will already know, we have published an amazing anthology Why Poetry through our favourite indie publisher, Verve Poetry Press, which is out now in bookshops and also available through the publishers themselves for £9.99. Link in the episode description. In the process of putting the book together, Stuart Bartholomew at Verve asked me to write an introduction to the anthology, which made me feel really, really awkward. As I've always tried to put guests and their work before me and my opinions... A compromise was reached and we decided that anthology contributor, author of the book's beautiful foreword and bloody good friend of mine, Abby Palmer, would interview me and the transcript of that recording would form an extended introduction weaving its way through the 28 poems and quotes from the contributors in the book. This brings me neatly on to today's episode. The resulting recorded interview turned out to be a pretty good record of the history of the podcast and a very good explanation of why I started it in the first place. Most remarkably, for two people that talk as much and as tangentially as me and Abby, it actually made a lot of sense. Now, as embarrassing as it's been to edit an interview in which I'm the guest, I've been assured by some regular listeners that there will be some interest in this episode. If, though, during the episode you feel it's all a load of insufferable self-centred nonsense, then rest assured it will not be happening again. We'll be back to normal next month. One important note about the anthology is that my wife and co-editor of the book, Lizzie Turner, and I have pledged to reinvest all money we make from sales back into transcribing the podcast throughout 2019. Our Arts Council funding ends next month and we can't be sure we'll ever even apply, never mind receive more. So buying the book will directly support keeping the series as accessible as possible. As always, you can find a full transcript of this conversation over at lunarpoetrypodcast.com. I'm going to be back in the middle of the episode with more names of poets featured in the book and to read another poem from it, but as a taster here are the names of the first 14 poets in the book. Helen Mortz, Sean Y. Kyung, Lizzie Turner, Grim Chip, Paul McMenemy, Donald Chegwin, Abby Palmer, Travis Alabanza, Anna Khan, Melissa Lee Houghton, Nadia Drews, Nick McCoa, Harry Josephine Giles and Keith Jarrett, whose poem... Grandad's Conspiracy of Yams, I'm going to share with you now. Grandad's Conspiracy of Yams. At night, because it's southern Florida and because of that summer with the spray killed orange trees in every neighbourhood, the government men arrive in sleeveless jumpsuits and clipped tongues. As one, they hurdle the fence, measure out the space between the blades of grass, detect the mounds of earth you handled. Each one they replace with stones, hard, small, not at all the size of what's unearthed. In silence they work, spades, rakes, gloves, gun, spray, a snake hiss. The mist of poison set to work on ground you've cultivated since you first arrived in southern Florida. They zip it up in body bags, their badges catch the light. They alone know the power of your hands. In southern Florida at night they disrupt the earth in your garden. The earth you so carefully tended, the earth which now tends to you. A 
accompanying that poem is a quote from episode 61 from way back in February 2016. It begins with me saying to Keith, something I've always thought about a lot is why people ask, what are you trying to say with your work and not what are you trying to ask with your work? To which Keith replies, exactly. I'm full of loads of opinions, but I'm not exactly full of answers. The more I respond to what's going on around me, the more questions I find. And uh, aping all good stand-up comedy sets, there's a callback to that later on in the episode. But here's me and Abby. We joined the conversation shortly after she asked me what motivated me to start the podcast. Back in the summer of 2014, I was... Let's go back a little bit further, not that much yeah. further, to the spring of 2014. That's when I first read a poetry open mic. And I, I read at the Dragon Cafe, which is a mental health support group. And I read there for the first time. And then the following week, I read at Nilo Sullivan's now legendary Poetry Unplugged. And I suppose between then and the summer, I was attending as many open mic nights and poetry events as I could. Because I hadn't really had much exposure to poetry... I was just desperate to know more and I wanted to know why people kept coming to these nights. I just felt like after every time I'd seen an open mic with 10 to 20 to 30 people read, there was at least two people every night I was desperate to have a conversation with and I wanted to ask them these questions. These are things that I was wondering. I didn't know, I didn't know enough about poetry so there were gaps in my knowledge and I desperately just wanted to ask these people these questions. And it wasn't a space to do that. Once I befriended a few poets, early on I met Sean Y. Kyung and Anna Khan. Mm -hmm. They were probably the first two actual poets to come and talk to me at an open mic night. And we started having these conversations in the intervals. And I don't think even those two smoked, but they had this image in my mind of people huddling around with roll-ups outside poetry events in the interval, having these conversations. And once I started being not allowed into those, but invited by other people, I just thought it was ridiculous if other people didn't get to share in those because I realised immediately that I was lucky to be allowed into these conversations. And for reasons that we'll no doubt talk about as well, there are a huge amount of people that can't access those conversations and I wanted them to be as public and accessible as possible. And I felt like if I started this project, the slightly more selfish thing about it was it would mean I could get poets to myself for a couple of hours and just bombard them with these questions. In lieu of me having, I don't have any literature qualifications, I failed my English literature GCSE, and I haven't done anything in terms of literature since I left school. It felt like this could be my own personal creative writing MA, you know. I sort of acknowledged straight away that that was quite a selfish thing to do, but I reconciled my conscience by making these conversations public, no matter how silly I, or foolish or naive I sounded at the beginning. And one of the things that you you said has come back to me in various forms over several years is at some stages during the process, you presented yourself to me as somebody who didn't much care for poetry. My favourite David Turner quote ever is, my name is David Turner and I fucking hate poetry. Um, and that is from a review where you reviewed a night that you really enjoyed. Uh, my initial impression of you was someone who was sort of intensely passionate about something that you were also intensely objective about and trying to be quite neutral in your approaches 
to these conversations. Um, so I guess something that's interesting about what you've just said is that you, you kind of went into it attempting to extract information back out um, f- yeah. from people and, and have access. Something that's interest always fascinated me about the podcast as a series is the range of voices you get and the diversity of types of poetry. Could it be a fair assumption to, to make that you the conversations are actually the bit that have always interested you? It's funny. Part of me is slightly embarrassed that I used to so proudly go around saying how much I hated poetry. And I fucking <laughs> hated poetry. But yeah. but it's it was true and it's still true, yeah. but it's it's true for slightly different reasons now. The the deeper I'm in it. When I first wrote that sentence down, I wrote it on several reviews that I did for Lunar Poetry magazine back in 2014, which was another reason that the podcast started, because I was writing review of reviews of poetry events and spoken word nights. One thing that led me to have these longer conversations was that the word count, although it was generous, it was like up to 1,500 words, which is exceptionally long for a review, it wasn't long enough to talk about the things I wanted to talk about. Going back to the point of I fucking hate poetry was that I hated poetry with air quotes, you know, and, yes. and what it stood for and how exclusive it could be and how if you said you were into poetry, in, in most people's minds, it was a very, very defined and narrow thing. But I, cho- yes. I chose not to put air quotes around it because I didn't want it to seem tongue-in-cheek or like I was trying to back out of it and I didn't have conviction because I really had conviction, you know. I hate poetry in the same way that I hate fine art and I love fine art. If people ask me what I mean, I don't understand how they can't see how closely love and hate are interlinked. And what I think has changed now in what I hate about poetry is slightly different because if you view what I said early on was a rejection of the established idea of what poetry is, I have to accept that now, four years into running a poetry podcast, I am establishment. Not that I'm an established voice or opinion, but I am as established as anything I would have rejected at the start. And what I hate now about poetry, it's still those things about refusing access to certain people and it's still this defined and narrow view. And and all along my motivation has been to meet people because I find most people that I meet intensely interesting. I know, And the conversations I have, I don't ask facile questions. I don't ask things that I don't actually want to know about people. I really want to know these things. And I just think that everyone as much as it's possible, physically possible, deserves to have their say about this thing that they love. I suppose this is what I mean, actually, about not being an establishment. I am a gatekeeper because I run a series and I choose who comes on. Mm. And I want to be as generous a gatekeeper as possible because whilst it's very noble to say, let's smash the system and remove all gatekeepers, all you're doing is setting up a new generation of gatekeepers. You know, and, and with every blow to the establishment you just set up new little cliques and fashions and groups basically i'm just trying to reject that i suppose yeah and that goes back to something that we've also talked about before you've mentioned to me in the past that when you uh, started up luna poetry podcasts you wanted it to have the feel of a zine so there have been a, a few aspects to that that have been really interesting as a listener can you talk about what you what you mean by that I suppose my main motivation at the beginning was content over production values to a certain extent. It's equally at the beginning as much by design and wish as it was by financial circumstances because you can't, unfortunately with podcasts, you can't start unless you have a microphone 
and a recording device and access to the internet to upload it. That doesn't mean you can't start an interview series because you could have a tape cassette recorder and you could walk around and meet people. But how you distribute that then becomes an issue. And within that, the thing that I really loved about zines was that because there was no motivation to for any financial gain, it was just about a subject that person loved and it was just about putting out the cheapest and most accessible version of that conversation or that opinion or that idea or that drawing or that image. And I really loved that and I really wanted to embrace that. I suppose one reality of making a podcast is that very lo-fi interviews through the course of putting this book together I've been going back through some older interviews and Christ there are some shockingly bad recordings in terms of the quality of the recording and that's all my fault that's all my fault so you do at some point have to accept that if you want to reach as many people as possible which is sort of the idea of the zine anyway is that you have to embrace the fact that I have embraced the fact that I probably needed to up my game Production-wise, I needed to look into getting new equipment. I needed to look towards spending some money where possible to make the conversations as widely accessible as possible. Whilst it's nice to have a little bit of atmosphere in a conversation, you can't, it can't be inaudible. <laughs> yeah. So um, your role as a podcast um, primary interviewer, it sounds like you wanted to ask a lot of questions and get and get access and, and democratise that access to some extent. Has that changed in any way? I think I've realised along the way that what it means to try and make something accessible is not what I envisaged at the beginning. In exactly the same way of what I was rejecting about the term poetry or the idea of poetry, the idea of what access is, is far broader than I imagined at the beginning. Because most of these, most of what you're talking about when you talk about access are not things I experience myself. I'm able-bodied and I, my hearing is deteriorating somewhat, but I still have pretty good hearing. And I'm white, cisgendered, and I've learned along the way of how insulting it is to claim that you're making something accessible when it's not to someone, you know, yeah. and how disheartening and upsetting and one of many many repeated blows that that person receives in their life you know and I suppose that goes back to production values as well probably at one point felt like if I just made something if I just transcribed in an episode that would make it accessible and of course it goes a long way but that isn't what that is you know um can I say I've also learned to shut the fuck up (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because well, it's that, very hard yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 it's an it's a really interesting thing my next question is literally about this um, I noticed that you do put when you when you're the interviewer you do put parts of yourself into the podcast without ever having performed a poem on the podcast you find common grounds with people despite the fact you have a really diverse range of performers um you share in a way that the conversations seem to flow very naturally a lot of the time and yet you've got this range of poets not from one particular scene but from a, a range of of scenes and a range of like the the widest diversity of styles of genres and of backgrounds of poets that I've seen in an organized poetic structure which it is ever I think um so I guess what my my question there is how do you know what you're looking for when you when you choose your speakers there is one very very easy answer 
And that's yeah. if I ever hear anyone talk, anyone that I overhear, either they're on stage or I overhear them at an event talking about how they consider their work. Pretty much is a green light to come on the podcast. I made a very conscious decision right at the beginning that two things would happen. I wouldn't read my own work. I wouldn't promote my own work on the podcast. And that I would not only have people that I liked on the podcast because it would have run for about 10 episodes and then stopped. <laughs> and that doesn't mean to say that I've had people on that I hate, but, you know, this is the beauty of what poems and poets are, is that they're so wide-ranging that even if you don't particularly find anything in someone's work, if you sit down long enough to talk to them, there'll be there'll be areas where you can find overlaps in interest. and um, So that's the main thing that I look for, is someone that considers the process of what they do. Outside of that, there is of there is obviously the the selfish element where I'll choose someone whose book I really love, or I see them perform, and I just and I think oh, I have to talk to that person. I love their work. Um, yeah, yeah. I've had the privilege of of being involved in one of those roundtable discussions um, where where you basically put a group of people in a room together who never met each other, sat in the corner and did the sound and then let them start talking. You, you're saying here that you sometimes let people do the choosing themselves. And did you do the choosing for, for No, so I had, a Skype, the... I had a Skype conversation with Harry Josephine Giles, who was the host yeah. of the Access to the Arts episode that you were a guest on. I allowed Harry to explain to me what they felt was important to that mm -hmm. discussion. Mm -hmm. And I allowed Harry full editorial control on the conversation yeah. and then we spoke about possible guests and then I suggested a few names and out of those names we decided to invite yourself and Andra Simons the reality of putting together an episode like that means there are financial constraints and there are logistical constraints Harry lived or still does live in Scotland so the choice was for me to travel to Scotland and mm. have an all Scottish or local to Harry uh, lineup, or for Harry to travel to London and then us find poets based down there. And that was the option we chose. There have been other episodes where poetry in schools, for example, Jacob Sam LaRose had full control and invited Miriam Nash and Keith Jarrett. That yeah. was, I had no say in that, nor did I want any. That's the thing, I suppose. I've had different roles in the podcast, and I am host and editor and producer sometimes all at once yeah sometimes i'm just one thing how do you juggle that yeah yeah it's really hard um i've i think it sort of happens more naturally now but i don't think it's necessarily any easier you just it just something becomes habit doesn't it it's still yeah. it's still exactly the same amount of energy the nature of a single host slash editor slash producer based podcast is that you have to be present in the conversation. You have to be aware of background noise. You have to make sure your guest is comfortable. You have to make sure that the recorder is on, still on, still on, still on. Listen to your guest. Do not stop listening to your guest. Make sure the recorder is still on and listen yeah. to your guest. Only then do you get to think about what questions you might want to ask them, you know, because I don't make notes generally. For my interviews yeah. I, I like to go in and for it to be a natural conversation um i don't know how relevant this is but i 
liken it a lot to a lot of improvised stuff that I used to do in which whilst you're improvising in the moment, you've probably got an idea of what, what your middle and end point is to be. And then you improvise with, within that. So I will have an idea of who my guest is and what they might want to talk about and might not want to talk about, which is also important. And then how they want to talk about those things. And then it's all about getting from the starting point to the middle point to the, to the, to the end. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's a really interesting thing. I keep coming back to this idea of the podcast and its relationship at, with Zine culture. In in that as well, the fact that you're even in the role of editor, producer, host, and having to kind of juggle it all and put it together, or kind of do it like a not a collage because it's a linear interview process, but that thing where you where from start to finish your assembling a production you're assembling a, an object that get, that goes out into the world it has other you're collaborating with somebody else and it feels like a collaboration when you're listening you're it's a two-way conversation it requires both people sometimes it's a multiple-way conversation but it feels like there's a democracy to it that doesn't always exist for instance in a poetry performance where you have to sit quietly and watch one person and decide and read the room as to whether you clap at the end of that performance and then the next person who's been chosen goes up and then you get an interval where you're allowed to talk for approximately five minutes and then you you sit back down it's not that you you've you've created a, a platform that is far more um democratic it I like the podcast as an object for poetry because you can um, you can pause it, you can move it around. Has the podcast format been important to you? Yeah, I'm really glad actually that you brought up the term dialogue because that's mm-hmm. what I wanted. I wanted to avoid too many things that I'd seen at Spoken Word Nights, which is so the reason that I don't read my own work or out of a hundred and sixteen or one hundred and seventeen episodes, the reason I've only read a poem three times on the podcast mm-hmm. and that's in very special circumstances is because I didn't like going to events where the hosts would read the first three poems of the night and center themselves uh, and detract from the guest. Yeah. I really didn't like that. So I rejected that idea. And then my main editorial thought when I'm in a conversation with someone is that I'm not actually in conversation with my guest, I'm in conversation with the audience, mm-hmm. which as the audience, audiences have steadily grown over the, the last four years, so has my awareness of that obligation, because I do see it as an obligation. You know, you're demanding, if you're demanding an hour or an hour and a half of someone's attention, you, you need to bear them in mind. You know, you have to center the audience and hopefully I've been able to give people enough time. Um, it hasn't always worked out like that, but too many podcasts, well, too many people are involved with projects where he's basically just producing a monologue. Yeah. You know? And I know I've definitely been guilty of of taking over conversations too much. I've definitely been guilty of t- talking too much. It's really hard to shut up if you really like someone or or if they're sparking ideas in you, you know? Yeah. And it's also hard if someone's very shy. To learn, it took me a long time to learn how to bring someone out of their shell rather than talking over the top of them to fill in the space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's something I've really admired, knowing knowing you, because 
uh, we're both t- talkers. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I, I have, it's, it's interesting to listen to you and watch you step into the, the professional role and take space. Um, and it's I a suppose skill. it's a performance. Yeah. Yeah. You know? It is yeah, a performance. Okay. Yeah. So it's a dialogue and a performance mm. at the same time. That's very interesting. Um, what have you learned about your audience? Oh, that they're really loyal and that they're really, really exceptionally broad-minded. Yeah. Because they seem to equally stick with any guests that I put in front of them. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing to think that hundreds of people will tune in. Most of my audience must not know most of my guests because I don't necessarily know people before I get to talk to them. There are a lot of people that have been on the podcast I haven't really known much about their work. People continue to listen to back episodes. And I can see through the stats that people, most people stick with most of the episode, you know. Mm. Actually, one thing you learn is about people's listening habits, you know, and how people return to subjects and return to episodes. Not everyone shares their identity through the devices that they listen on or the software that they listen on. But I'll see through my stats service that they've returned three or four times to a particular episode. That is the exact difference. Why I love podcasts over radio, there's a pressure to be live and be present for the radio in which there isn't, the podcast has, it serves the same purpose as a journal in that you can lay it down on the table and come back to it when you're ready. Yeah. You know, and it's I just, another thing that I've learned about my audience is that it is global. You know, I've got people right from the very, very beginning. I've had people in Malaysia and India and Australia and America and Argentina, apart from the uh, the poles, uh, continents. I mean, we've got listeners. There are listeners on every continent. That's amazing. Which is just yeah insane. And it's really beautiful to give, to be able to give a poet the opportunity to communicate with those people. And I do get actually properly emotional if I think about that side of things. Is too is too much to comprehend. And then I end up being glib and sarcastic to, to not cry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, because well, it's just too much to comprehend. I cannot, I cannot get my head around it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah. mean, they're, and they're strangers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, and like right from the beginning, I sort of expected friends to listen for, for a while, family members out of a sense of obligation to listen for a little while. But what, would you give people 10 episodes? That's too much, isn't it, to stick with it? Unless there's actually yeah. some meat there. You do have to avoid as a podcaster the evil that is um, an over-reliance on your statistical analysis through whatever hosting platform you use because that is just numbers and that will drive you insane. And it's really unhealthy. But what it does in some ways, one of the few positives that it gives you is that you can see that people come back and that there's a natural ebb and flow of the way that people interact with the thing that you make, which you would mm. never get, for example, from a collection that you've released. If you're an artist, yeah. you don't get this information. You know, you get sales information, but then you don't know how many times people have picked up your book. Good percentage of, of my listeners, I know how many times they picked up the podcast, which is really fascinating. Yeah. And sometimes all-consuming. <laughs> <laughs> something that I'm very aware that you've done is uh, you've spent 
a lot of time providing platforms for speakers from not diverse in in terms of of content but t- diverse in terms of who they are and you've provided a platform for some very difficult conversations that aren't happening in many places in the arts can you talk to me a little bit about that about how you've increased the diversity of your podcast so if anyone asked me my advice about how to run a successful podcast like interview based podcast and that is that you have to listen to your guest because if it's just a list of questions, the audience will know that you're not listening. Your guest will know, and everyone's interest will wane, including your, including your own. And then, if you're going to have conversations around difficult subjects, sorry, I think what we're both struggling with is these are not difficult subjects per se. These are subjects that are very emotive to people, and when yes. and when they're done wrongly, they're very mm-hmm. very painful to to the people that they affect. It just seemed the natural thing for me to do, and I can't believe that more organisations don't do it. And some some organisations do this very well, but still a lot make a lot of mistakes. They don't listen to the people that they're trying to address. Just a very, very, very simple example is if you're trying to talk about access for the hard of hearing to an audio production such as a podcast, you cannot have that conversation unless it involves primarily someone that is hard of hearing. Yes. And I mean primarily. And that is to give them full editorial control and to give them the platform, not give them the chance for a soundbite, not give them a chance to give you enough opinion that you can then chop up and frame your own um, editorial viewpoint. That is to give them the microphone and let them talk. Mm-hmm. about how that's affected them. And then also an extension of that is to acknowledge that that is a single person's experience of of the world and that every, every other hard of hearing person listening to that or engaging with that conversation will probably not have experienced it in quite the same way. And there'll be a lot of overlaps, but they will have their own experiences. And that, mm-hmm. so that's why Harry Giles was invited for access to um, to the arts. That's why Karani Baraka was invited for ac- um, access to publishing. That was why Paula Varjak was invited to talk about uh, artists being paid because all three of those people already made it their point to publicly talk about these subjects. That means you've got someone that's informed about the subject, but it also means that you're not burdening that person to come up with a whole episode for you. You know, Because yes. essentially once they leave you profit from everything they've done. And that was another thing. I didn't want to be profiting off of everyone else's experiences because that is unfortunately what a lot of organisations do as well. You know, By virtue of the fact of you seeming accessible, you bask in the glow of your own accessibility. And I don't want that. That's not what I want. I want something to be accessible and I don't want the credit afterwards of that conversation. I, like yeah. I, I do want to be known as an accessible producer. I want to be known as that because I think it's the right uh, motivation for life, pr- professionally and personally. But I don't want to be the one that takes any credit for any conversation that somebody else has led or has con- contributed to with their own yeah. experiences. Something that 
um, you did at the end of your first year of Arts Council funding was to um, publish publicly on your website a list of stats of exactly the demographic of speakers you had and and where the money went and well just an honest breakdown of exactly where it went and it was notably diverse in in some areas you you talked about where you where there was room for improvement you were it was the the frankest summary of how an arts council budget had been used that i've seen what was your intention in in doing that my intention was to instill some sense of accountability in other producers if we just talk about the demographic of the guests and the hosts, for example, that was a very, very hard thing to put together because it took a lot of trust that my guests and hosts knew that I wanted that information for the right reasons and not to make myself look good. Yeah. You know, because I could, you, could, you know, you can twist all that information to, to any purpose you want, you know. And also it's not a very nice thing to, to say to someone that they're invited on first and foremost as a writer and then a follow-up email saying but could you please identify yourself in all these different ways so that I can prove that I'm doing what I'm doing so that took a lot of trust on the the part of the people filling out the surveys for example which were all anonymous and I don't know I, I waited until everyone had submitted their information before I looked at the results and they were all collated so I don't know who identified in which way but like I said the main motivation was to then turn around and say look this is what I set out to do I tried to frame it in that way that I say mm-hmm. this is what I tried to set what I set out to do. These are the areas in which I think I achieved those aims. Equally, these are the areas that I felt like I'd failed or fallen short. I don't necessarily think I failed in any area, but I did fall short in a lot of things. And I tried to highlight what I'd learned along the way and what like we were saying earlier in this conversation is that a lot of the things that I was asking of myself to do as a accessible and having some sort of representation in the whole series. I was far more aware of those things by the time all all the questions had been answered. And then it was too late to revise the questions. So I was sort of stuck with quite a narrow view. Although although it is wider than a lot of organisations have asked, it was still quite narrow in terms of what I subsequently learned. Um, The biggest thing I'd learned from having a really amazing group of hosts and guests come on particularly the roundtable discussions but also the individual one-to-one interviews where we talked about similar subjects and themes like accessibility and representation is that without exception every single one of those guests and hosts all stated the fact that they accepted that mistakes would be made but it was how you then faced up to those mistakes and if you were just honest and hold your hands up and say well we need to improve in these areas People can live with that because everyone knows yeah. everyone makes mistakes. I mean, there is a pressure on you then to not continually to make those mistakes. Although sometimes you learn more and more about people and you learn more and more about certain themes and subjects and it can become daunting and almost terrifying to think, well, if I, if I fuck this up, people are going to really be upset. But similarly, the more you, the more I learned about people, the more confidence it gave me to just face up to things you know because people really respect that yeah yeah like when you talk about how you interview uh interview people and the fact that you don't necessarily come with a script you don't necessarily come with an agenda there's a vague outline but you but it happens live um there's 
it sounds like this, the same sort of thing has happened with the conversations around accessibility. You've li- had to listen and adapt the conversation as you've learnt more. So um, would it be safe to say it's sort of been a, a user-led experience? I mean, I would say as much as possible, yes. But you have to, I suppose this is part of accountability. Yeah. It would be wrong for me to then not say that I have to accept that it is not a user-led experience because I'm still yeah, editing okay. stuff. You know? Yeah, it is. It is a collaboration, I think, where I aim as much as possible to have it, even if it ends up 51 to 49% in favor of the 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 guest or the audience that's better than nothing ideally i suppose i'd aim for more like 80 20 with with my final 20 percent being just the, the mechanics of editing and putting something out i don't think you can actually achieve that uh, i think that's what's led people to engage with the series as participants is that i acknowledge that right from the beginning yeah and uh, all that people want to know is that you're going to do your best to to present them as they want to be presented. But the only way that they could be properly represented is to give them their own show. And I go as far, I give them an episode, but they don't get the show. They don't get the platform. They get the platform for the time they're on it. And yeah. I think it's is just important to acknowledge that because it gives you a more realistic idea of what's possible to achieve. Because if you go around think, saying, oh, I look at me, I just give everyone this platform, then you, you're making it about yourself. And then you're centering yourself as a, as a gift giver. Yeah. And we don't like want to go Santa down that Claus. fucking route. Yeah. Yeah. I <laughs> mean, know. yeah. Hello. I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. As I said at the beginning, don't worry if you're not. It won't be happening again. Due to us not planning to publish this conversation in its entirety, it did break down a lot and there were toilet and tea breaks, most of which I got rid of through the magic of editing. But this little break here, well, nothing could save it. I thought I'd take this opportunity to thank Verve Poetry Press for giving me the chance to put together Why Poetry and for that opportunity to allow me to work so closely with my wife Lizzie. It's been a wonderful, if very consuming, experience. I'll also use this space to give you the names of the other 14 writers in the book. They are Luke Kennard, Amira Saleh, Karani Baroka, Joe Dunthorn, Zaina Hashimbeck, Kim Moore, Rishi Dastadar, Sandra Alland, Giles L. Turnbull, Susanna Dickey, Mary Jean Chan, Leo Boykes, Roy McFarlane, and Jane Yeh. It's a pretty stellar lineup. Before we rejoin the conversation, I'm going to share another poem from the book by Nadia Drews. This is called Punky Sue, I Love You. Flowered eyes flared, I sat there and stared. She had sugar spiked licorice stick hair. With ripple dripped lips, black currant lolly licked hips, she shone sherbet white through mohair. On the smack line I floor by the battered back door I sat down no protest and saw With horror bag crisps and she spoke smoke wisped lists of wounds she had got in her war Glue stuck to her side sniffed limp lifeless cries from a sickly grip jelly baby boy Cough dropped dummy top from a bleak sheetless cot no peekaboo toy hiding joy 
She told the big girls what she knew of the world, of benefits, costs, lost fist fights, of what she should give, how often and how, tattooed tracks marked lifelines black as night. She watched the cracked clock and when she took the knock we were kicked out. She cursed and she swore she'd never been glad to see those bad lads, but they kept on knocking for more. Well, she did a flit when she'd got sick of it and it turned out she wasn't so fit and riddled slag lads bragged what they had had and popping space turned us to grit. But I'd been there, I'd seen what a love heart she'd been, a bubblegum sticker for keeps. And when I'm on the floor and I've locked the back door, I savour the taste of cheap sweets. And that's accompanied by a quote from episode 86, October 2016, in which Nadia says, Music and politics are the things that have shaped anything that I've put on paper. I was brought up by my mother who has had a lifelong commitment to socialism. In middle age what I'm still trying to act on are those impulses from my teenage years. I think the world is rotten to its core and I believe that music and other art forms like poetry can play a role in lifting people's spirits to change it. We rejoin the conversation just after Abby has asked me what effect receiving funding from Arts Council England for the first time had on the way I produced the series. I can't say anything other than it revolutionised everything I did. Like, it just made all the ideas that I had possible overnight. Like, it was amazing. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't the, the Arts Council have their flaws and the application process is littered with issues and littered with problems. But there is no way that I could deny the positive effects that, that having that money suddenly had on the project because it meant I could just go and talk to the people that I wanted to and it didn't matter if they were in Northern Ireland you know I could travel to Belfast I could travel to Leeds and dedicate a whole episode on poets that also worked as playwrights and have an episode specifically about poets as playwrights in West Yorkshire which I could only have dreamed about having such a niche subject which turned out to be a really rich couple of conversations you know I couldn't just wait for people to come to me in London, you know. And you're taking your audience with you when you turn up. So you're opening up a world of poetry that isn't just London. It, even as, as someone based in London, it's, it's exciting. The Yorkshire Theatre uh, episodes are interesting in knowing that there is a niche, a niche scene out there and having a world of poetry suddenly open up to you um, as a listener you wouldn't have been able to access um it's, it's hard enough in just in london sometimes to get out out the house as as a disabled listener who can't get out the house sometimes the lunar poetry podcasts can be a lifeline because you you sort of get adopted into a clique and then can't show up enough and that's a really disgusting part to me about the creative scene in in a country that does have some arts budget it's disgusting to see how much or how many decisions around who's allowed in and who isn't into the arts is about who who turned up at the right pub on the right day and that comes with it a whole host of problems so yeah having having a podcast that has managed to avoid those pitfalls is exciting and it's um it stops it being lonely and it stops it being about anyone's gang and i guess that's sort of leading me to the next the next question you um have identified on the podcast as a, someone from a working class background and also uh, someone who's had mental health ob- 
obstacles and you talk about that very openly and yeah I wanted to ask about that like about how how that's affected your access to arts how how was that for you growing up I'm lucky in that I come from a household where both my parents read a lot mainly romance novels and horror novels so I was surrounded by books and this is again going back to the whole thing about just because you identify in a certain way, your personal experience will be different to those that identify in the same way. And whilst it is a very valid and true narrative that some working class people, the only reading material was a newspaper on a Sunday, that is not the case. A lot of, you know, just because you're working class doesn't mean you are in any way unable to engage with the arts. What it probably does mean is that you engage with a very particular type of the arts. There probably is a stereotype, and it's definitely one that I encountered that poetry is trying to be too clever and that if you are into poetry you yourself are trying to be too clever and that is aspirational and that is it can be really poisonous when identifying strongly as working class as i said earlier i i failed my english literature gcse and i went on from school to serve a joinery apprenticeship so i became a joiner I did for three months do half of a fine art foundation course. Mm-hmm. I, broke, I broke my elbow falling off of a scaffold oh, um, and couldn't finish fuck. the course. And I, but within that, I was, I was offered places at Wimbledon School of Art and Goldsmiths to read History of Art. But I turned those things down. And the reason I mentioned the fact that I failed my English GCSE and didn't go to university is because... I was having, at both times, having borderline emotional breakdowns. Mm-hmm. And that's how my mental health obstacles have impacted the way I interact with the arts, is that they have physically stopped me interacting with life and, by extension, the arts. Because my mental health obstacles, specifically for me, bipolar type 2, has incapacitated me at times it has disabled me physically and mentally and emotionally for obscenely long stretches of my life and it has stopped me as I said it stopped me engaging in with anything never mind the arts I wrote a lot in my late teens and my early 20s I used to write reviews of art exhibitions I went to for my own amusement I've always been able to generate or form my ideas in my own head through a dialogue. So I'll either talk to myself or I'll write a conversation with someone else. And that sort of came out in reviews as well. And then I had a really severe emotional breakdown in my, I suppose I was about 24. It was the first, of, the first time I ended up in a hospital, for example. And it was only a sh- very short stay, but it was, it was quite a big thing to happen. And I stopped writing at that point. And I didn't write again until I was 33, I suppose, yeah, well, that doesn't make it 33, doesn't it? 2014, the spring of 2014, I was um, admitted to the Maudsley Psychiatric Hospital in South London. Yeah. I spent five weeks there. In there, I was encouraged to write. I had issues with um, compulsive and impu- impulsive thoughts, and I was encouraged to write these down because I couldn't articulate them at the time. And I've not really, I've never really had any problem talking about my mental health state. But at that time, I was just very, I was 
emotionally exhausted and I couldn't articulate it. So I was encouraged to write these things down. And when I left, I just had these notebooks and notebooks of lists of phrases and sentences, which looked like poems, but didn't read as poems. And this is one of the things about this being a journey of my, or an education for me in poetry. I now know that they are just found poems and they're just list poems, you know, but I didn't know that at the time. I, I, I didn't know what these things were that I was writing. And going back to the start, I then went and saw, I saw an open mic event at the Dragon Cafe, which is a support group that I attended. And I saw someone read a poem. And it was one of the few times in my life where it really felt like a light bulb had gone in my head. And I realised that what I wanted to do was talk to people. But perhaps there was something in this medium that would allow me a way of articulating a truth about what I was feeling. But communicating in a way that wasn't centering myself and was accessible for other people to recognize mm. aspects of it having spent five weeks in that hospital and secure psychotic specialist ward called john dixon um it taught me very very plainly that not everyone that goes through those things has the ability to talk about their experiences afterwards and i sort of came out of that feeling as though i had an obligation because if i ever felt like i could talk about mental health mm. problems then i probably should and I suppose the last four years since, four, four and a half years since coming out of the hospital, what I've been trying to learn along the way was what is an appropriate time to share those feelings in conversations? What is the right way of talking about your own experiences that will allow a space for other people to talk about themselves? Um, and I haven't found the yeah. answer. And I don't yeah. think I'm probably unlikely to ever find that answer because, of course, it varies from person to person and experience to experience and moment to moment as well, you know. Um, but, again, it just goes back to your what are your motivations. If you're seeking that, people will probably sense it and trust you more. Yeah. yeah. And so it's a beautiful way of addressing the stabilizing experience. And it's also, it really resonates as, as someone who, who also physically has to check out of, of a scene and, and come back in. And I think that having, having a physical record of the conversations that you've been having since, since 2014 and the learnings that you made, but in a way that, that does enable other people to, to also track that, that journey I mean, that's a really valuable thing to have. Um, and do, do you know something that's sort of suddenly fallen into place in my head is that one of, when when I first started interviewing people and 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 Lizzie, my wife, was yeah was my main co-host, mainly because we were both happy to work for free on this project, <laughs> um, and we didn't mind because poetry had become our life anyway, and it was just an extension, and it, it wasn't really um, an intrusion to have these conversations. Early on, the first question would always be, why poetry? And I've sort of stopped asking now, or I do ask it, but I ask it in more nuanced ways, and I try to tailor it to each guest. But it was really important for me to find out, like, why would you be doing this? Why are you here sharing these ideas? To what aim? And to what end? Because there's a really, there's a really strong link with your mental health, right? Because there's nothing really more poisonous than wondering what the fuck you're up to <laughs> and like questioning what you're doing and questioning your own motives because that can really eat away at you mm -hmm. and you're absolutely right it was really nice to look back on this archive of evidence of what I was doing and why I was doing it 
And I need, I need when I came out of the hospital, I'd never, I'd never really thought of it this way, but I needed something to do. I needed something to fill my time that yeah. wasn't destructive. I needed a space where I could talk about those destructive things because that's what my poetry is. Not, not that it's destructive, but it is, it is facing up to these hard things in my life. And I think this project or this series has given me a way to just keep shouting into the void that is the internet, like why poetry? And that really could just be like why anything. Why is the important thing? Like, yeah. like why? I don't. I don't understand. I don't. I don't understand why people listen. I don't understand why people come on as guests. I don't understand why I'm doing this. But it doesn't matter because it's happened. And I can't say it isn't happening because it's there, isn't it? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, and it, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. It, and it's a very real thing that's happened in my life, and it's a very real thing that's happened in my life that I can't, or my mental health issues and my predilection to sort of look at more negative things in my life and focus on them. I can't turn this into a negative because it hasn't been negative. Yeah. The and the why question that is almost every poem ever written isn't it like what what you've got is a series of whys framed in different language like people when people are reading their poems and you're having different why conversations with each guest like that's what a poem is isn't it it's different ways of having the same conversation mm. and using language to explore this big existential hole we're in what like what why do we need art funding like why is it so important that in this country we have access to things that aren't solid facts i think um the politics of of the podcast is also an interesting aspect it's an, an interesting thing about poetry that it can it's something that's sort of lauded by both the left and the right wing in different ways yeah. and it's sort of held up as this high high art but also this waste of time and, this um, has been the most yeah. productive waste of time in my life. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. I, and I think we're really lucky as humans in the, in, in the West in general that we are afforded a space to waste our time and that it should be embraced. And it's difficult sometimes if you say to a poet, well, it's really great that you've got a, time, a, a way of wasting your time. People <laughs> take it personally as if you're saying that it's, it, it's not any good what they're doing or there's no point. That's the very thing with how we view what art is in the West. Yeah. Because it's a very Westernized view of what a re this kind of artistic representation is. But it is what you do in your spare time. And this is what, why class politics is so important to me because not everyone is afforded the time to play around. Not everyone is afforded the time or permission to waste their time. Mm -hmm. whether that's because they're from a background where it's heavily frowned upon and they're judged for what they're doing or they physically can't engage with something or they are not allowed to identify their own gender or sexuality in public, you know? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Or, you know, for any of these reasons. Or, and I suppose you have to be open-minded, they're not also allowed to write a love poem to Theresa May. I don't know. You know, and, that, and and the thing is that is as as disgusting as I imagine that piece of work may be, it's important <laughs> that someone would be allowed to do that. You know, because yeah. you can't deny that person this shit that they want to make. You know, 
It's, <laughs> I was going to say a really profound thing, but I've sort of stuck on that love bone. But <laughs> I was just thinking about like the luxury of self-expression and then that linking to the luxury of self. That's what it is, isn't it? Yeah. Like, you know, the luxury of being allowed to be exactly who you are, like even if that is a love poem <laughs> to a yeah, young way. Yeah. <laughs> but like the only way we're going to answer questions the why questions which lead to language around for, for instance the, the new language the fact that non-binary is a recognized term yeah. is a new mm-hmm. uh, experience for a lot of people the fact that there are words for certain types of trauma certain types of experience if we didn't play with language and create space for questions we wouldn't have the language to identify what's actually going on in our lives politically if you see campaigns about other governments and other regimes you know it's this um to to varying and horrifying degrees of punishment very often what we're complaining about is the the denial of the freedom of expression yeah and it's really poisonous for people you know it's so destructive to somebody's being to be denied the chance of to define themselves and to express themselves in the way that they want to do and if i can play any role in allowing someone to express themselves in the way that they want to then i view that as more important than anything i might write myself or any chance to be published or any chance to be lauded as a podcaster, you know, some people may not believe you and I don't give a fuck what they think because I know, <laughs> because I know in myself yeah, that is my motivation. That's what I want to do. I want to be able to give people the chance to chat, even if that's the chance for someone like Donald Chegwin to come on and do his King Prawn poem, you know, something <laughs> that might seem really stupid to some people or not stupid but less important than certain things. And let's, uh, like, I think it's also worth acknowledging the experience of Lunar Poetry podcasts now being um, archived in the British Library. They're now a body of literature that's been collected. What was that experience? What what did that mean to you? I was hugely proud of that. It sort of runs against or runs up against my naturally self-deprecating personality. But I was really, I, I really felt like I'd achieved something. Yeah. Because it meant that these disparate voices were suddenly in a really established archive. And it meant, it meant that people like someone like Mishi Marat, someone that doesn't even class himself as a poet and, and in his own words is just an open micer, is now in an archive, a national archive, which will be until we're taken over by the ants will be forever preserved. Do you know what I mean? Like, and it's ants love podcasts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose my my aims when I started was to learn to make a podcast, to reach one hundred episodes. I know that was completely arbitrary. I don't know why I chose that, and was to be accepted and archived somewhere. And I don't know why that was in my mind, but it just felt like that would be. Tell you what, I think it would be that that was then my permission to make something. Yeah, yeah. And and while and whilst you shouldn't go through life wanting permission, it is a very real thing. Like you do want that affirmation, but I think rather more so than 
the affirmation is is the permission to do something you know and what and i think that's perhaps why i felt so strongly that i had an obligation to give other people a place to talk is because i i felt like i had no right to be here because of my background and it's not that you can't be published as a working class writer it's none of those things but whilst that is now becoming an easier thing to achieve it is not the accepted it is not the status quo in production and editorial roles it is yeah. you are not given the permission to run something as a as a marginalized voice you yeah know? that's true and and it, and it isn't i don't feel like i can be a writer i feel like i can be a writer because i physically write and you're not defined as a writer by being published and you're not defined as a writer through anything other than writing is what my belief is. But taking the next step up where you're then in some position of responsibility and in control of a project, that is not available to people, you know? Yeah. That's, that is still only available to a very, very select group of people in this country. So I think I needed that permission and that, that kind of affirmation. I needed that to be able to turn around to anyone that ever questioned anything I'd done and just say, well, they think it's worth archiving. And when I had a meeting with them, they sat down and sold themselves to me because they knew I had a collection of voices that they hadn't gotten hold of before. Because there are there are many poetry archives within the British Library. Oh, yeah. And they were, very, they were themselves surprised that there were so many poets that they hadn't heard of, you know. And that made me really proud. I was really happy that day. We've basically now come to a point where we've got an anthology about a podcast about poetry that is now going to be a collection of poetry. Yeah, yeah. Um, what made you want to put a book out in this form? Right from the beginning, I didn't shy away from the fact that I wanted to keep the word poetry in the title. So it became mm -hmm. Lunar Poetry Podcast because when I started, the fashion was to talk only of spoken word and to frame it as a spoken word project. Yeah. But I wanted to root it firmly in the act of writing poetry and the tradition of printing poetry on paper. Um, because whilst the oral tradition in poetry is much longer and the oral tradition of storytelling is much longer, it was only the advent of the printing press that made any form of literature accessible because it meant you didn't have to be sitting in the presence of the person telling the story. I didn't want to lose touch with that. And it seemed natural to go from the written word to the spoken word, to the recorded voice, to a digital form, to then return back to a paper form. Again, it just seemed a natural thing to do. Mm. All of this is pointless speculation without a publisher. And it wasn't until Stuart at Verve Poetry Press said, well, we'll do it. Because whilst I had an idea of what it might be, you know, you may as well just be imagining anything at that point, you know, if you haven't had a firm offer. Things like um, including quotes to go alongside the poems, that was an idea that Lizzie had had who's co-editing this book with me. She s suggested it would be a really good idea to have them in. I didn't dismiss it, but I just didn't imagine that a publisher would want to go with that idea. And then Stuart said that he'd love that idea as well. So it was it was just a really perfect way to sort of frame the poems, retain a, another dialogue, not just dialogue through the poetry, but retain elements of the dialogue and root the anthology firmly 
within these conversations again. So that was really yeah. nice that something that leapt to Lizzie's mind immediately was we were able to put that in place. Yeah. yeah. I've seen the range of writers that are included and I've seen some of the quotes you've pulled. And I was really interested to see that the quotes that you have pulled already, they're a lot about the diversity of poetic practice like that there's a lot about process like so the why question isn't just mm. why but how yes, yeah. and even in that is it's actually fascinating to read as as an external observer who, who doesn't know which poem has been chosen for each person and sort of see it framed like that and my next question was going to be has that been a big part of it for you it's really exciting to me to hear that that's a big part of it for Lizzie as well because something we haven't talked about much yet is Lizzie's role in mm. this you're a husband and wife team you marry uh, a year ago tomorrow <laughs> I met Lizzie you, at Poetry met... Unplugged yeah okay <laughs> we read so, it at an open yeah. mic night yeah 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 so um, so poetry's been a big part of your relationship and yeah. um, I have like the support network that you two provide each other within within this project I'm re- I'm always really fascinated by in terms of the dialogue and, and the roles roles you have I was going to ask is the dialogue about practice a big part of the anthology for you? But I kind of want to pull Lizzie into that question as well. Yeah, so um, the editorial and production process in the podcast is far more weighted towards me. And it is a project that I started and it is identifiably my project. Um, Lizzie has provided a huge amount of support in terms of physical and logistical support beyond anyone she's the person i've i've ranted ideas to endlessly and she's enabled me to talk things out and given me a space because i don't talk about my own ideas some that much on the podcast i don't have really a space i need a space to just work things out and we have those conversations over dinner and over breakfast and on the way to work and and at night and i think there wouldn't be a podcast without her definitely you know i think it would have fizzled out i don't think i would have been able to maintain the energy without having someone else involved when it came to the anthology i wanted to make sure that she was more involved and i would say that the selection first of all we each wrote down 30 names of people we would invite to the anthology and then we compared them and any overlaps went immediately into the invitation list and then the remaining five or six or seven we then discussed and debated about who we should have in and then as poems started coming in we each read the submissions independently and again we made like uh, a top four if you like depending on how many submissions there were and the ones where we agreed upon they went in and any we've got fairly similar taste but where there were divergences we discussed them further and reread them at some points we sort of said to each other well this person is probably more to your taste and it should probably be your choice so there were a couple of yeah. a couple of times where we just allowed the other person to choose the work that your invitation to submission definitely didn't mention anything to do with these have to be poems that have featured on the podcast how's that weighted are they poems that have featured on the podcast uh i would say maybe two yeah or three possibly yeah. most, most yeah. people have been really generous and, and submitted new work some people have submitted previously 
um, published work, and that will that will be credited and listed in in the in the back of the book if you want to know. But um, it just seemed natural and in keeping that we said to people, all we want to do is give you page space. We don't want to tell you what to submit. And it, it reflected more the desire behind the podcast would be to just yeah. say, well, we want you to be part of it, but we want as much as possible. And again, it's about this collaborative aspect in that ideally we'll just give you the page space for whatever you want to show. But in reality, you'll have to submit some work and we'll see what's appropriate and we'll see what fits and we'll, we'd like to have some say about how it's framed. But essentially you get to choose the four or five poems that you submit. And it, and it won't be anything other than these things that you're happy to submit. Um, so it's about finding that blend. But it, with a lot of people that come on, I have favourite poems by them. There are things that I would mm. love for them to read to me, but I won't demand them. I won't request them. I want the person in that moment to be happy with how they're being represented. And we wanted to have that as much as possible in the book as well. So there's a huge range of writing, you know. And if you think Helen Mort was a guest in episode three back in December in 2014. Yeah. And her work is hugely different. So, like, so there's no way of saying to her, can we have something like, like what you did? But she's since had another fantastic uh, collection, no, no Map Could Show, and numerous other publications. And her way of thinking about writing, I'm sure, has changed immensely. Both being a guest on the podcast and also listening to the podcast as a collection and, and a series of dialogues is um, the sheer number of them being churned out one after the other and the sheer number of conversations and how they've grown and how they've evolved and the different shapes conversations can take is a good reminder that art isn't a fixed object and that whether we're listeners, whether we're actively engaging with the with the form that's being discussed or whether we're we're an audience, we're not finished yet, any of us. And it just remi not reminded me of a quote that I pulled out for Keith Jarrett, and I think it's a really beautiful yeah. summation, is that uh, basically I had said that, that I can't understand why people ask you what are you trying to say with your work and not what are you trying to ask with your work and his reply was exactly I'm full of loads of opinions but I'm not exactly full of answers the more I respond to what's going on around me the more questions I find it's almost so succinct it makes the podcast irrelevant yeah it because it just it, says what everyone yeah, has said constantly yeah. for a hundred odd episodes you know yeah and I wish that's what um arts education in, in this country did. I wish that that's what GCSE English did. I've tutored GCSE English um, for, for years and having to explain to disaffected 16-year-olds that poems aren't trying to tell you one thing mm. is a constant job. I wish that they printed that at the beginning of every GCSE <laughs> syllabus in the country, yeah, you know, yeah. um, I wish that I'd known that when I was 16, the fact that there isn't a locked door. And I think this is the myth of poetry, that there's a locked door and either you get it or you don't. And you're constantly trying to solve a riddle like Sherlock Holmes. The idea of, of poetry being a riddle is so offensive and sad and so much part of, of education and what's wrong with aspects of but it's an idea that's been supported education. and perpetuated, isn't it? You know, and yeah, and the more yeah. that that was held up as a as an example and a benchmark, the more poetry was written in that style. 
you know, and they're, they're by far the biggest regret that most poets have had on the podcast is that um, poetry is has been traditionally taught so badly in schools and taught as this sort of exclusive club that you can only join if you understand and fully engage or can pretend to understand it and fully yeah. engage with yeah. a very select band of dead poets, you know, and that is not a rejection of these poets' work, but most of those poets are writing in a way that supports a particular type of government and supports a particular idea of what empire was and national identity and stuff. And this is, it's, it's so easy to imagine why people reject it. And that doesn't mean that everyone will come around to love it because that's the world we live in. You know, some, you know, some people will never want to engage with poetry and that's fine. But I, I do think if you, if you just taught something that was closer to the breadth and depth of what poetry actually is, then more people would respond positively to it. And I hope that that's what the podcast has done for some people. Yeah, that's. I think that's a really nice, um, almost point to to end it on. There, yeah. like it's. Yeah, it, I think so too. Yeah, is there anything you did want to add? No, um, no, we've covered everything. I think. Yeah. yeah I mean, cool. We should have done this. Gone on for a while. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. You stuck around. Grab yourself a biscuit as compensation for sitting through me talk for an hour. Thank you so much to everyone that has downloaded, listened to or shared an episode over the last four years. I've really loved the space and time to talk to you all and share so many wonderful poets with you. And if any of you out there are thinking of starting a podcast, I would say just go for it. Bear in mind that it's a lot of work, but anything in which you're going to pour your creativity into is a lot of work. Don't let that put you off. Also, don't listen to anyone that says it costs thousands of pounds to get started. That's just rubbish. I produced my first 76 episodes using smartphones, tablets and a USB microphone. If you don't have those, then get in touch with other podcasters. We're a friendly bunch. And someone's likely to help you out in some way. That's it for today. For more from us, visit lunapoetrypodcast.com. Find us at Lunar Poetry Podcast on Facebook and Instagram or at silent underscore tongue on Twitter. I'll be back next month with episode 119 chatting to Bristol poet Shagufta K. Iqbal. I'm going to leave you with a poem by one of my favourite poets, Susanna Dickey, which is accompanied by this quote from episode 108, November 2017, in which Susanna says, It's not the most important thing to be published, because it's the act of writing and what that gives you. It's really lovely to feel like you're getting closer to that stage of producing the kind of material that you really respond to because while you like to feel like your work is saying what you want it to, it's also a really nice thought that someone else might be responding to it similarly in the way that you respond to others' work. And I think that's just a really nice summation and open-ended question as to why people not only write but try to share their work. This is Remove the Oboe and the Joy Would Follow by Susanna Dickey and it is after... Leander and Hero by Hannah Lash. It comes in a fur-lined case like a well-cared-for recently deceased firearm. It has its own screwdriver. Smaller than a regular screwdriver, children are always being given small versions of regular things and asked to call them toys. Get ready, you are now the mechanic of something. 
when an oboe gets blown it's a chorus of the throat it's a slow and ancient courtship it's a clown car horn an oboe makes Debussy's little shepherd an asymptotes it makes Luke John be a little doughy it makes its player wet and undignified Low C or high E flat is three UTIs at once. This is because the oboe is a witch's finger, a regular person's store-bought ginger stem. The oboe takes you to the forefront of an orchestra's mind. It sighs goose loneliness. The oboe wakes you with the clamminess of its unplayedness. It puts you in spaces that need to be filled but does not make you interesting. The oboe is not enough to recuse you from your decisions. It isn't a baby or a glass eye, or a relative of some historical interest. The oboe, brought out, shown off, is a collective gasp. It is a dank breath held separate from the whistling holes in Wabakimi Provincial Park, the uncontrollable airs of the rest of the world. <laughs>